A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you've fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds. And while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The glass noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. Hi, it's Mark Reed Edwards, and welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. Today, we have Leslie Zane, president of Trigger's Brand Consultancy with us. Leslie is a TEDx speaker and contributor to Harvard Business Review, Media Village, Scientific American, and CMO.com. We are privileged to have her with us to dig into a subject that seems absolutely massive and critically important to understand, dominate the subconscious. Let that sink in for a moment, what it actually means. Leslie, welcome to Confessions of a Marketer. It's great to have you here, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. So am I, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is going to be fun. It should be. Yeah. I'm, you know, as I've looked at this on my calendar, I've really been eager to dig into this because it's a fascinating area. I want to start with your role at Triggers Brand Consultancy and how you got involved in the subconscious. So I uh, founded uh, Triggers uh, Brand Consulting back in 1995. It was actually the first women-founded brand strategy company, which is interesting. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And prior to that, I worked in many blue-chip marketing organizations in brand management. I worked at Procter & Gamble and Revlon and a host of others for about 10 or 12 years. And the thing that really struck me when I was inside uh, those organizations is that our marketing initiatives were incredibly hit or miss. Mm -hmm. And I could not understand how it was that here I was at the blue chip marketing company of the world. And so many of the things that we worked on actually didn't drive sales. So I set off in 1995 with the express intent of creating an approach that would absolutely drive revenue every single time. I didn't believe that marketing should just be a bunch of pretty pictures and cool looking logos. Uh, If they did not, if the work did not drive business, what was the point of doing it? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And why do you think the, the subconscious is so important for businesses to understand? Well, you have uh, many different parts of the brain, but let's just separate it now very simply into conscious and subconscious. Mm -hmm. When you go up against the conscious brain, it's very hard to make progress. The conscious brain 
which is located in neocortex, the newer part of the brain, and only processes information at 40 bits per second, is very slow and very plodding, and it's also very resistant to change. So if you are trying to convince somebody to buy your product or persuade them to buy you on Amazon, you are going up against a very skeptical part of the brain. In contrast, the subconscious is much more malleable. It doesn't see you coming. It's on all the time. It's automatic. And ideas seep in there much more easily and without as much resistance. So if you look at today, it's very hard for companies to gain share. Growth is a major problem. We can talk about that in a moment. But the fact is you will be able to make much greater progress growing your brand if you work through the subconscious than through the conscious mind. It's the difference between being confrontational with the conscious brain and being collaborative with the subconscious brain. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I'm interested in exploring what you mentioned a little bit earlier. Did you have an epiphany early in your career that set you on this path? Can you drill down into that exactly the circumstance that made you start thinking about the subconscious? There actually is a particular episode, if you will, that does stand out in my mind. I was a a brand manager in a very well-known baby care company. And we were working on personal care, baby shampoos, baby washes, things like that. And one of the things I noticed was that uh, fathers were getting much more involved in caregiving. And I uh, noticed that our advertising still only had moms. And those moms were all blonde and blue-eyed and Caucasian Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the babies as well. And so I made a revolutionary recommendation. I recommended that we put the first father in a baby care ad. Mm-hmm. Well, that may sound very simple and <laughs> easy to make happen today, but back then it truly was revolutionary and it met with a great deal of resistance. Men don't have babies, right? <laughs> There was that. There was that it's still moms who buy these things. You know, we don't have any research showing that this is important. And I kept on pushing my recommendation. And finally, I had my performance review. And my performance review said very clearly in black and white to my chagrin, Leslie is too passionate about putting fathers in advertising, and this is an executional concern, not a strategic one. Well, this was a knife in my heart. Yeah, that must have hurt. That really, it really hurt. It was really hard for me to get over that. I really felt, I didn't mention earlier that between college and business school, I worked at Bain & Company, which is all about strategy. And so I fancied myself a pretty strategic person. So saying that this was executional and not strategic was really quite the insult. So after I got over that, I didn't stop because I'm pretty persistent. Uh, I kept trying to find data and different ways of explaining to the organization how important this was. And they finally did put the first father in a baby care ad. And what do you think happened, Mark? (laughs) I think the results were probably speaking for themselves. 
product started flying off the shelves, and it was the highest scoring commercial in the company's history. And it was probably a good PR move too, right? It was. It was. And for me, it was also an epiphany. It was the epiphany that really put me on my path, my journey, because what I had unknowingly found was a trigger. I had found this this subconscious cue or code, father and baby, which was much more powerful than mother and baby. And it was filled with a host of positive associations everything from modern and progressive. And, you know, this is a dad who really cares about his baby. And I'd like to have a husband and father like that to, hey, he's pretty cute. And so there were all these, it was packed with supercharged, really, with all these positive associations that worked at a subconscious level, not at a conscious level. It was nothing that had ever shown up in any of their research, because it's not It's something that anybody would just come up with. And it certainly wasn't listed in the brand tracker of of attributes. It was an association that was just extremely powerful. And so that was the moment that I realized that the subconscious definitely had a direct linkage to the growth of a brand. And that's what I'm really excited and passionate about, which is that the way to grow brands out in the marketplace actually starts with growing brands in the subconscious. So let's talk about that. What is subconscious marketing and how does it differ from conscious marketing? Subconscious marketing means that you are focused on developing lots of positive associations and filling people's minds with those positive associations to make the brand grow. So what is a brand? A brand is a collection of associations that live in our memories. And little by little, over time, those associations, both positive and negative, get glued to the brand. It's basically cumulative memories. That's what a brand is. And when I say glued to it, I mean physically glued to it. There's protein synthesis between the associations that come in and how they adhere to the brand. I think of it like a tree. Mm -hmm. A brand takes root. It starts as a little sapling. And the associations that you add to it, positive hopefully all positive, but negative ones unfortunately happen as well, as you know. Sure. The positive associations are the soil, the water, and the sun that make that brand connect home, brand connect home, and I'll explain what that is in a second, make that grow from a little sapling into a full-grown tree. Associations live on branches. In the brain, they're called dendrites, but we can think of them as a tree with branches. And as the associations come in, more and more branches have to sprout. And that's how brands grow, by your feeding them positive associations and the brand lives in your memory. And the larger that tree is, the more it becomes your go-to brand, the more salient it becomes. It has to be more salient and larger and more robust than your competition's brand. And then that's when it becomes the brand that you reach for automatically. Let's talk about that term you just used, the brand connectome, which you wrote about in Knowledge at Wharton. What is it and why is it important to this whole concept? 
So there's a project that's being done in many universities today called the Human Connectome Project. And that is an effort to basically map the human brain, map all those different wires and pathways. And it's obviously a vast project that's going to take many years to figure out. It's such a, it's so funny that here's this thing that we walk around with all day, right? And we know so little about how it works. We really do. I think that history will look back on this period and really say, boy, were they primitive, um, (laughs) that (laughs) that they knew so little about the human brain. But it triggers because we had to really find out what's inside the brand and how is the brand operating inside, particularly non-users and competitive users' brains. We found that you could actually map the brand connectome. So think of the brand connectome as a little piece that you kind of pull out of that overall human connectome and you can examine it. And it's made up of, it's an ecosystem, a network of associations, positive and negative, that have gotten attached to the brand over time. And what you're really looking at, that brand connectome, is what are your barriers and drivers, but not the barriers and drivers that you get by asking somebody about it in a survey. That's just going to give you attributes and very top of mind responses. What you want to do is get deep down inside there into where the brand actually forms. The brand forms in the subconscious, in your memories. So that's where you need to dig into to understand what is going on with the health of my brand. Yeah, it's really, boy, we could do a podcast series probably on the brand connectome because it just strikes me as something that is without end. Uh, Because we don't know that much about the brain, this could go on for a long time, I would think. Yeah, just put it into practice for a second so that it just becomes a little bit less conceptual. If you were going to the supermarket, and let's say you go to the orange juice section. I haven't been to a supermarket since March. Okay, all right. (laughs) (laughs) But I miss it. I miss going into the cheese department and, and, you know, all the things that we love to do in the store. I can't wait to get back. Well, if you were to go with your mask on, most likely you, like pretty much everybody else, would just reach You would not sit there and contemplate which orange juice brand should I buy? Oh, this one has these five features and benefits. And this other one has these 10 features and benefits. Oh, I'm going to buy this one. Your brain is not a computer. Your decision-making process is not that conscious. Mm -hmm. In fact, 95% of the decisions that we make are estimated to be made just completely automatically on autopilot. So that moment that you reach, let's say you reach for Tropicana, you don't even see the other brands out there. We ask consumers afterwards, you know, what are the brands were on the shelf? They have no idea because it's almost like there's this nice little halo, this highlight, spotlight shining just on the brand that they buy. And they reach for that over and over and over again. I mean, that's the holy grail of marketing when you have what we call instinctive brand preference when it's that brand is your, the brand that you're working on or hoping to build is the dominant instinctive choice. Well, what made it so? 
What made it so is that in your memory, you have a brand connectome for Tropicana that's larger and more robust and more positive than your, you know, Minute Maid or your Florida Gold or your private label brand connectome. That Brand Connectome is so vast and so filled with positive associations that it overtakes your memory in that category and has more salience in your mind. And so that's why it is what we call your go-to brand in that category. Yeah, I know that I've got as kind of mental associations with brand that I'm loyal to and I can't remember why. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm just going to buy that brand of milk or that brand of orange juice in your example or a type of apple from a it's kind of funny maybe you rationally make that decision early on and then just forget what it's about later i think that's true i think that really what's happening is that your positive associations about that grand uh, that brand have accumulated over time yeah And without your realizing it and formed this vast ecosystem of positive associations, and you're just a robot at that point, Mm -hmm. um, choosing that brand over and over again, you know, I like to say you don't make your brand choices. Your brand Connectome does. It's deep inside and it's dictating what you do for the most part every single time. Now, you can interrupt that. I can incentivize you to buy something else. I can target your conscious brain and I can give you a coupon. I can discount something so deeply that I will cause you to go buy something different. But I will not have achieved instinctive brand choice there. I won't have changed your instinctive brand preference. That's why it's so important for business leaders to understand that they have to really focus on the subconscious. That is where the brand actually forms in the first place. And that's where you want to start influencing the brand Connectome that they're working on to make it healthier and more robust than that of their competition. Yeah, fascinating. So you called the Wharton article Cracking the Code on Brand Growth, and I'm sure my listeners would love to get that code. So what is the discovery you made about how brands actually grow? So as I mentioned earlier, The brand Connectome starts as a sapling and then grows into a full-grown tree, hopefully, if you're fortunate and you have been doing the right things, adding the positive associations as many as possible and pruning the negative associations. The negative associations happen by themselves. The brain often creates those negative associations, or maybe it'll misinterpret something that the brand has done and created a negative association that you need to get rid of. So several years back, McDonald's was in trouble, as an example, because so many of these viral videos were out there saying that it wasn't real food. There was all these negative processed chemicals in the food. None of that was true, but the viral videos were making people believe that they were. And so they had accumulated negative associations that they didn't put there, but sort of the brain had created. Mm. And it's the job of the marketer to prune those negative associations because what the negative associations do is they actually weigh down your growth. They hinder growth. And so the key to growth, to growing brands, is basically two things. 
you have two very pretty simple principles. One, you have to have a higher ratio of positive versus negative associations. The higher ratio of positive to negative associations you have, the faster you're going to grow. And second, you have to have a large, robust brand connectome. And this is a physical thing. It's not, I'm not talking figurative share of mind. I'm talking physical share of mind. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, uh, you know, a game of Monopoly. You need to own more physical real estate in the brain, in people's memory structure. And that is the key. Those are the two keys to growth. Mm -hmm. Higher positive to negative ratio and a large and robust connectome that you keep feeding with positive associations. So when they say, I need a widget, the first thing that comes to mind is Acme Widget Company. Exactly. Yeah. You, you want to be the brand that they think of first. And the key to that is that that brand connectome is more salient in your mind. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. Do you remember back in uh, the Middle Ages that Xerox didn't like the idea that their name had become a generic term for photocopying and Kleenex didn't like that their name had become a generic term for facial tissue? And now Google doesn't seem to care, mainly because probably people 100% use Google to Google things, that they've become a generic term for searching the internet. I totally agree with what you're saying and, and where you're headed. I think that basically that meant that Kleenex and Xerox were dominating their categories. They were the go-to. You have a, a really a tremendous competitive advantage by being the largest dominant player in your category. It means you have the largest brand connectome. And the company that accumulates those memories early and often keeps adding and adding and adding till it becomes the largest is going to definitely be the winner in its category. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't make inroads. And so many of today's disruptors have shown that you can. In that same article, Acknowledge at Wharton, I talk about Dollar Shave Club. So Dollar Shave Club was a small company, came out of nowhere. And how did they do it? You know, how did they make inroads in the likes of Schick and Gillette, these behemoths, behemoth razor companies? How did they do it so fast? Well, they did it by adding a lot of positive associations to their brand very quickly and simultaneously giving negative associations to the other larger razor brands. Yeah, they did it with a, an attitude that you rarely see these days. I mean, they were kind of a kick-ass and take-names company, and their advertising was incredibly good. Yeah, and there was a, a particular video that, that people should watch because it's just so funny where the CEO in this video makes a very stark comparison between their brand with all of these positive associations that 
it's, you know, good value, it's high quality, it's practical, direct delivery. He, they're creating jobs for people from other countries. And this other guy over here, they never name them, but you know exactly who they're talking about. This other company over here is giving you a hammer, an air conditioner, a toolbox, um, <laughs> you know, all of these things that you don't need in a razor. It's over-engineered. And contrast is a beautiful thing. The mind loves contrast. And so by very starkly setting up that they were just this very simple kind of razor that's high quality, but really what your grandfather used and all you really need versus this over-engineered thing, they made you feel like you were paying way too much money for the other brands. And, you know, suddenly people just came over. So they just, they drove incredibly high conversion at an accelerated pace. Yeah. And they were bought for like a billion dollars or something like that, weren't they? They were. They were. And I think that really shows that even though the larger brands do have sort of that initial ad advantage because they're just so large in the brain, there's hope for smaller companies. There's hope for the, you know, number two, three, four, and even, you know, a complete startup, a totally new company to make those inroads. But they do have to set that contrast up between the two and lots of positive associations quickly. But it does make you think that a company that is kind of fat and happy offering a product that maybe has 50% share or whatever it was that Gillette had and uh, feels that it can you know, raise prices and keep prices high. And I remember going and buying razors you know, 10 years ago and you think, $50? It just was kind of insane how much money you'd spend. And then Dollar Shave and Harry's come along and it just completely changes that business. And it makes you realize that big companies need to think about what's on their flank because they're not protected from insurgent uh, uh, companies uh, like maybe they were before the world was flattened by technology. I totally agree. And I really like the way you said that because one of the things that we've found in working with clients from Fortune 500 companies for 25 years is that marketers tend to examine their categories in a fairly insular way. They tend to just look at the competition that's very much like them, not realizing that from a consumer standpoint, there are porous walls between categories. And really, anybody can come in from anywhere, and it, it's happening all the time. That's really how disruptors do it. And they're blindsided. So I couldn't agree with you more that we need to look at competition in a much more holistic way yeah. so that we're not blindsided and so that we can maybe look at those opportunities ourselves. The big brands themselves should be looking for those kinds of opportunities can come in from the side and do it themselves before someone else does. I think Amazon is a prime example, no pun intended, of doing that, looking at the market in totality and thinking, where can we enter the USB uh, power supply market or something that most companies wouldn't even think of. And they think, well, we can do it a little bit cheaper and do it a bit better and sell it to our customers because we've got such reach. I totally agree. I think they are doing a good job. They're preempting and they're thinking about all the different ways that their expertise can be applied to many different areas. And I think that's another thing that I notice that marketers tend to do, which is 
They'll define what they do as a set of attributes that they need to cling to, whereas much more useful to define what your brand does in terms of its expertise, mm-hmm. because then your expertise can be something that's a common thread through many different categories and many different kinds of product and service offerings, and you're much less limited that way. That's how you become a mega brand. Yeah, yeah. So let's get back to the subconscious. Can you tell me what the subconscious advantage is and how do you get it? Sure. So let's start with the term that that phrase is built off, which is competitive advantage. Hmm. So the notion of competitive advantage was developed in 1985 by Professor Michael Porter at Harvard Business School. And basically what he said is that there are two ways to get a competitive advantage. One, you can be the low-cost supplier. Or two, you can be truly differentiated and charge a premium. Those are the two ways you can get a competitive advantage. But I can tell you that over the past 25 years, I have seen many companies that are truly differentiated, that have products and services that are truly superior, yet consumers or customers, whether it's B2B or B2C, think that the product or service is parity. Yeah. So here they do, in fact, have superior product. It's highly differentiated. And yet the consumer or the customer, the end user, is not appreciating that and perceives it as parity. And I've also seen the flip, which is parity products <laughs> and services that have perceived superiority. Right. And so when you think about it, It turns out that competitive advantage, having a competitive advantage is not nearly as important as having the subconscious advantage and having that perceived superiority on the other end, which means it's all about the subconscious. And the key to gaining the subconscious advantage is the story I told you earlier about getting your brand to fan out, to branch out, we actually call it brain branching, to dominate more of the memory terrain in the brain. That is the key. And perceived superiority is made up of a lot of different things, which we can talk through. But that is really what you need in order to have subconscious advantage. Yeah. I think of this term quibby, that was in the news recently for being around for about nine months or so and uh, having an investment of like $1.7 billion or something like that, and it's going out of business. And they were presenting short, episodic videos. And no one really, they probably thought, well, we've got a differentiator because all our videos are short and really well produced. And yet there was no subconscious advantage for them. People didn't think, oh, I... I guess I need that, right? Because I can go to YouTube and watch what I want or Netflix or Disney Plus or any of these other services. And maybe length of video and format of video is not as important as the familiar things that you know. Yeah, no, I think that's a great a great example. It may have had a technological advantage or a technological differentiator, but there were many more associations that they would have needed in order to create that perceived superiority. 
Plus there's the habit factor, mm. um, you know, the habitual nature of using the platforms that you're already using. There would need to be, uh, you know, a real good reason or many good reasons to incorporate another one in your life or to switch to that one. Yeah, whereas Disney Plus has the association with Disney. And I think everybody in the world has some kind of subconscious association with Disney in some way because of just their omnipresence. I think that's true. They also have tremendous nostalgia. Nostalgia is one of the strongest forces because what's happening is when you say Disney Plus, you're actually connecting back to an entire connectome of experiences, movies, yeah. you know, shows, visits, Disney World, Disneyland, you know, the characters, you know, there's, there's an entire vast connectome of associations that goes with that, that's summoned. And that creates that built-in subconscious advantage, that built-in perceived superiority. And that makes me think of that scene in Mad Men. We mentioned Mad Men earlier, but that makes me think of the scene in Mad Men where Don Draper is presenting his concept to Kodak about the slide projector. And it's all about memories, right? It's all about nostalgia for, you know, photos that you took years ago and being able to present them and show them. And it's that same feeling, right? That's exactly right. And there's actually a misnomer that, Many marketers think that using nostalgia and leveraging nostalgia will make their brand old-fashioned, but that could not be farther from the truth. Millennials, young, even younger than millennials, all have a very powerful connection to things that happened in the past. They're curious about it, and it's very, very motivating. As long as you don't just stay stuck there, mm -hmm. um, if you still show as a company, as a brand, that you're innovating and moving forward... Actually, the combination of those two things, hooking into the nostalgia while also showing that you're moving forward, are some techniques that really actually help brands grow. Yeah. So why don't more companies use subconscious advantage? <laughs> well, you know, we are all creatures of habits, and that includes marketers and business leaders. And quite frankly, we have all been taught a set of marketing principles, and those marketing principles are still being taught in business schools. They're still being taught in companies like Procter & Gamble. They consist of ideas like persuasion and appeal. These are ideas that our work for the last 25 years has shown not to be that effective. You really can't convince anybody of anything. Right. And you can't persuade them of anything. All you can really do is change and influence the brand connectome inside people's memories. So the problem is that we are using a set of traditional marketing principles from a rule book that was created in the days of Mad Men, or maybe even earlier. And yet all of the brain science that we now know about, behavioral economics, neuroscience, psychology, anthropology, all of those were created, were discovered later. And what it really should do is make us question the rules that we're using. At Triggers, we have a whole new set of the new rules of marketing, which are based on brain science. And that's why they work. 
But I'm on a mission. You ask me why it isn't happening today. That's the reason why, because we're still being trained on the old rule book and we need a new rule book. But that is kind of my mission, my purpose. I am championing a new way of doing marketing that's actually easier and requires less resources because you're leveraging the brain's own behavior change mechanism. That is going the path of least resistance versus confronting this conscious brain and trying to persuade it of something it doesn't want to do. Right. This has been fascinating. I feel an obligation talking to anyone these days to talk about COVID, and I'm interested in your perspective on it and what advice you have for companies in this trying time. We're recording in late October, and uh, there's a spike happening. (laughs) There's an election happening in a few days. And I'm just interested in what advice you have for companies right now. So the issue that we have is just like brands have a connect home and people have connect homes and presidential candidates have brand connect homes. uh, So too, COVID has a connect home. And it turns out that the COVID connect home is made of two different clusters. So think about Think of it as a tree that branches off into two large trunks. One trunk, uh, one cluster, has lots of associations that are related to preservation. And that is driven very much by our survival instinct. We are going, you know, staying home. We are want to sort of pull the covers over our heads. We want to bring our family close to us. It's accompanied by other associations, lack of spending, risk aversion, being concerned about our health. And so this giant cluster around preservation. On the other hand, there is another part of the human experience in the COVID connectome, and that is a set of associations that are related to perseverance, moving forward, making progress, building businesses, hiring people, undertaking new ventures. And the problem right now is that the preservation cluster of associations is dominating the perseverance cluster. And the reason that the Consumer Confidence Index is in the basement is because that metric, which is way up here, what's really underneath it is this: these two clusters that are vying for dominance. And until the perseverance cluster g- grows larger and overtakes the preservation cluster, we are going to have an economy that's in the doldrums. So what can a company do about that? What can companies do about that? What we need to do is we need to make people feel safe. We need to make them feel protected. So we need to satisfy that risk aversion and their survival instinct and make people feel comfortable that they're going to be okay, put in all the safety measures, make sure everybody's wearing masks, clean everything, and like overdo it on that, on those attributes. And simultaneously inspire people to move forward. 
And it's sort of a one-two punch. Inspire them, encourage them to take on those plans, to make those vacation plans, to hold that party, but to do everything in a safe way, or maybe not hold a party today. Make plans for a party in the future. Yeah, or do it on Zoom. Or do it on Zoom. But that is really what companies have to do if they want to help spur the economy back into a positive state. So we've talked about a big subject, subconscious. What is the the message you would like to leave people with on that subject? I would say that the good news is that every brand at every stage has the potential for higher growth. There is no such thing, by the way, as a mature brand. It doesn't exist. There are no built-in life cycles for brands where brands must go from you know, birth to getting older to maturity and then decline and ultimately go to the grave. The notion of a built-in life cycle for brands is a misinterpretation of the fact that as brands go on, they do tend to accumulate negative associations but that's a misinterpretation of the data. Mm -hmm. What's really happening is that they have accumulated negative associations that haven't been pruned, and those negative associations are hindering their growth. So the good news is that every brand has the potential for higher growth, and all you need to do is to keep feeding your brand positive associations, prune the negatives, and keep innovating and developing and evolving your brand so that it stays healthy and robust. The Brand Connectome is the most important metric for understanding the health of your brand. It's not a proxy. It's actually looking at the brand in the brain of your growth target, and it's really the key to growth. This has been great. I'm sure my listeners, you know, they'll want to learn a bit more. So how can people get in touch with you? Put a note in the show notes. Uh, sure. They can contact me through LinkedIn, Leslie Zane. You can contact me through my website, triggers.com or lesliezane.com. I always love meeting new people and would love to connect with anybody who's listening and uh, have a conversation. Great. Leslie, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with my listeners. It was great having you on. Thank you for having me, Mark. This was a lot of fun. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Reed Edwards, executive producer, writer, and host of Confessions of a Marketer. Shep Salau is my producer, helping put together the shows every week. Annalyn Timball is my assistant, and she helps with guest relations and getting everything scheduled just right. Thanks, Sheb and Annalyn. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2020. Stay healthy, and see you next time. You stay home for the greater good. Secondhand smoke doesn't. It drifts through cracks in walls, air vents, and sink drains, spreading toxic chemicals that can damage lungs. Secondhand vape also puts your lungs at risk, even with the fruity smells. Protect yourself and the people around you from these secondhand dangers. Learn how at tobaccofreeca.com.